system And the fly in the ointment is gonna bring the whole thing down The gates are open We've let the demons loose The big guns have spoken And we've fallen for the roots Hello and welcome to episode 1561 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. Do you ever dream about articles, whether it's articles that you want to write or articles you want to assign or any other kind of content you want to create? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I sure do. Huh, okay. Yeah, I don't often, or at least if I do, I don't remember because as I've mentioned, I very rarely remember dreams. But I had one this weekend where I dreamed that I was watching a baseball game. So that should have been a tip off right there that <laughs> it was a dream. And I think the Yankees were playing, but some of the details are foggy. But all I remember is that the pivotal play came when the third baseman moved toward the shortstop and they kind of collided because there was a ball on the infield and the third baseman was playing too far over. And so he kind of got in the shortstop's way and they tripped each other up and a run scored and that was the end of the game. And I remembered, my dream self remembered seeing a previous game in that same dream season where the same thing had happened. And I thought, oh, this must mean something. And I thought, oh, that third baseman used to be a shortstop. So I bet if you have a former shortstop playing third base, I bet they play too far over. I bet they play closer to the shortstop position because that's where they're used to standing. And so subconsciously, they just stand too far over there and they get in the shortstop's way. And I thought, I'll write about that. I'll look up what happens when someone moves from shortstop to third base. Do they stand too close to shortstop and get in the shortstop's way and I was convinced that this was a great article idea and I woke up like oh I got got my article for this week I'm going to write about this and then very slowly it all fell to pieces like first I remembered oh that wasn't a real game so that play didn't actually happen so I can't use that as a peg for the story and the more I thought about it I thought well this actually isn't very interesting at all even if this were true it wouldn't be that interesting and I'm sure it's not true and probably other people have looked that and it would be obvious if it were true so this is nothing but when I was asleep I thought oh great article idea great one Ben and then it turned out to be just a complete fiction sometimes gifts will chase me and like and it's not a play from a game it's a gif of a play from a game which is basically my brain being like hey just write it already why don't you stop (laughs) with these Stop making these. Mm -hmm. I have had a I had a dream where it was important in the dream that I be able to tell Dansby Swanson and Charlie Culberson apart and I couldn't do it. (laughs) It was important. Like it was sort of like a the bomb will go off if you can't. And I was like, I don't know, it's the same boy. (laughs) Yeah, that's a real nightmare scenario. There's no way to tell them apart. Can't, they're identical. They're the same person moving back and forth very fast. (laughs) So yeah. I've never I don't think I've ever had one as specific as that, where it's like, here is a research question that that a fake baseball game yeah. is presenting to me. Let me go find the answer to that. That's, um, I guess, of all the ways for strange pandemic dream states to manifest, because this has been an observed thing, right? This mm-hmm. has been a phenomena that our brains, and that some people are dreaming very differently during the pandemic and during um, lockdowns than they are at other times. This sounds like a, I mean, I know it didn't end up being fruitful, but relatively <laughs> productive manifestation of that phenomenon, Ben. 
Yeah, my my different dreaming is that I remembered a dream. So that's exciting. So yeah. maybe it's because I slept a lot this weekend. It was a long weekend. And I guess the more sleep time there is, maybe the more dream time there is. Although yes. I, I guess you only dream during certain parts of the sleep cycle. But maybe because I slept so much, I actually remembered a dream. So yes, I had fun. a pretty good holiday weekend. And good. Uh, hopefully you had at least a decent holiday weekend. Yeah. MLB did not really have a... No, it sure did not. (laughs) You know, one of the weird things, and then we will get to all the snafus, but one of the, you know, one of the weird things about any job is like things that matter to you for work reasons don't matter to other people for those reasons, but do matter very much. So like I was frustrated and irritated as our listeners can probably discern by the the behavior of ownership in the course of the negotiations to resume play. But I will admit I will admit the teeny tiny little part of me that's tired was like, oh gosh, not having a three day weekend for the fourth would be really, that'd be really hard for me personally. Mm -hmm. And so that isn't a good reason for labor discord that may end up being very damaging to the long term prospects of the sport. But since that was going to happen no matter what anyway, I'm glad that it lined up so that we all got a three-day weekend at the very least. Mm-hmm. We seem to be have been better prepared for that reality than baseball was, which is yes. surprising because, you know, the 4th of July, it's not like Thanksgiving where the date moves around. We know when the 4th is going to be. <laughs> Yes, I know. Right. So a lot of things went wrong, at least partly because of the holiday weekend, or at least that was the reason given. But holiday weekend was not a surprise, as you were saying, maybe something that could have been planned for. I don't know. But really, the testing, some results were released and announced, and they didn't sound catastrophic. But then it turned out that it was all very incomplete, that many teams had not been tested or not received their results yet. And so that was just kind of a, a partial accounting. And then There were stories about teams not getting their results and days going by. Several teams canceled practices because they could not guarantee that their players did not have coronavirus. And so we never expected this to be smooth. (laughs) That was part of the reservations about baseball starting was that this seemed kind of untenable at times. And really, once it finally started, once teams reported to camp, Everything kind of ran off the rails very quickly, and so you did have more players opting out, including some prominent players like David Price and Nick Markakis, and then you had other prominent players testing positive and in some cases experiencing symptoms like Freddie Freeman, and you had other players expressing various serious concerns, and even if they showed up to camp, they kind of reserved the right not to stay or at least said that they were uncomfortable with the conditions, and I'm talking players like Mike Trout and Mookie Betts doesn't get bigger than that. And MLB, again, said that there were delays in processing and transporting the samples and getting the tests back and that they had contracted with FedEx, but that didn't work for some reason. Then they contracted with some secondary company and they didn't have their own fleet of planes. And so there were fewer commercial flights, et cetera, et cetera. And then they were reportedly looking into getting a second testing facility to help them process these samples at a time when, again, there are very long lines for tests at various places around the country and still increasing case counts. So it did not go smoothly and no one really would have expected this to go smoothly, but it probably went worse than we would have expected even or or hoped at least. And things are still proceeding, still planning to have a season here, but it was not really an encouraging first weekend. No. And I, I think that, you know, the, like you said, the number of things that had to go 
right for this season to sort of proceed in a way that not only was practicable, but that anyone felt good about. It was just so many things, and all of them were predicated on at least this baseline of testing being able to be completed in a way that actually means something that gives teams and individual players the information they need to behave responsibly. So much of this protocol is predicated on individual decisions. And, you know, Mike Mike Trout had some quotes over the weekend about guys needing to take care and be responsible and take care for one another. And I I don't mean to say that individual decisions in the course of a pandemic don't matter. And I think that that understanding of one's obligation to one's teammates and just to people in your community of, of mutual care is really lovely. But so much of a successful pandemic response isn't about individual behavior. It's about institutional responsiveness and planning and being able to engage in solutions that actually work and give people the information they need. And there's nothing more basic to that whole project than knowing if you do or do not have the coronavirus. <laughs> right. It's like the the most important piece of information that you can have at your disposal to make choices. And I mean, I guess it could have been worse. Like teams could have still proceeded with workouts not knowing the status of their players. So, you know, I guess we're glad they passed that particular test. But this is only going to get more logistically complicated as teams are traveling. So... Right. I don't think that the necess- that the conclusion is necessarily we have to cancel the season today. There's no way this can work. But you know, I think t- I think back to the beginning of the um, sort of public messaging around mask wearing at the beginning of the pandemic and how you know not having clear messaging about the necessity of masks because public health folks were trying to maintain a stockpile of PPE for healthcare workers has sort of led to some confusion in some quarters around how necessary they are. And I I worry that this is going to represent sort of a similar erosion of trust in the process that's being laid out by Major League Baseball on the part of players and team personnel that the league just doesn't have it together around this really important aspect of the protocol. And so I think that there's time to salvage that, but it needs to be decisive and it needs to be very transparent. And that might result in them needing to share more information than they had previously planned to just to try to reestablish a baseline level of trust between players and teams and the league. Because it wasn't as if players are the only people, I mean, they would be perfectly justified. I don't mean to say only as if they would not be justified, but they weren't the only ones who were grumpy about this. Team leaders were pretty openly upset with the league mm-hmm. and its leadership and apparently got scolded for that, you know? <laughs> yes. And I don't think your response to Mike Rizzo in that moment can be, how dare you? It has to be like, yeah, we were, we screwed up real bad. We're very sorry. It'll never happen again. <laughs> right, yeah. So it's uh, it was not, it wasn't the best. Yeah. Nationals GM Mike Rizzo said, we will not sacrifice the health and safety of our players, staff, and their families without accurate and timely testing. It is simply not safe for us to continue with summer camp. Major League Baseball needs to work quickly to resolve issues with their process and their lab. Otherwise, summer camp and the 2020 season are at risk. And then, yes, it was reported that he was chastised by Rob Manfred for his quote-unquote insubordinate comments. And yeah, there were stories about testers not showing up to camps. There were stories 
about protective equipment not being supplied. I saw Matt Gelb, the Phillies beat writer, tweeted that Adam Hazley, the Phillies pitcher, wasn't in camp because the Phillies sent in his test and never got it back. So there was all sorts of stuff slipping through the cracks there. And one would hope that it's just first weekend hiccups and that they will figure out the process and do whatever needs to be done and iron out the kinks there. And not that it's going to be completely safe ever, but that they'll at least meet the standards that they set for themselves and that the players agreed to. Otherwise, we'll see. Like at this point, it's hard for me really to imagine MLB pulling the plug on this unless we see like a very serious outbreak with one team or maybe a star player is very seriously afflicted or or something. But if this stuff keeps happening, then you might see more players starting to walk away. And if that has kind of a, a snowball effect, then eventually you could get to the point where it really undermines the competitive integrity of the season. And so we're not there yet, but it was not a great start. Yeah, it was it was very discouraging. You know, it's very it is not surprising that this would happen, but it's never it's never good when this sort of amorphous and theoretical issue is thrown into specific relief. But like, you know, forget what it means for the Braves as a team. Like Freddie Freeman, I hope Freddie Freeman's okay. (laughs) You know, and I know when Nick Markakis made the decision to opt out, he cited the conversation he had with Freeman and how he sounded. So, you know, I don't want players to have to suffer for people to learn this lesson, but like this is very serious business and it's going to potentially alter the course of guys' careers and lives and we really have to get it right or we need to not do it at all. So it's Mm -hmm. a bummer. Yep. And podcast hero Rich Hill came out and said that he'd like clubhouse personnel to be tested every day, just as the players are or theoretically should be. Currently, they're tested twice a week. And and so, yeah, there's a a lot of concern like that. And and it stinks that we don't get to see Felix Hernandez try to make a comeback as he opted out or so much for the Nick Markakis run at 3000 hits. I I guess that's officially (laughs) over now. So. Every opt-out, you totally understand why players are deciding to opt-out, but each one is kind of a a little twinge of, oh, maybe I I would have liked to watch that guy. (laughs) So it's sort of sad to, to see it happen. Yeah, agreed. And on that note, we're doing season preview podcast today. So get excited for the season. So it's been almost four months since our last season preview episode. It was episode 1511. Sam and I previewed the Twins and the Pirates. And little did we know that we would not be picking up for another four months and 50 episodes. But here we are. As mentioned last week, we had four team previews left or four season previews left and eight team previews so we basically had the best teams and the worst teams left because we were going from the middle projected team to the extremes and that takes us today to the Tampa Bay Rays and the Miami Marlins so they kind of go together in that they are both Florida teams and both teams with good farm systems and both teams with low payrolls and both teams that are coping with COVID-19 resurging or surging in their state so We will be talking later in the episode to Jordan McPherson, who covers the Marlins for the Miami Herald. And in just a moment, we will talk to Josh Tolentino, who covers the race for The Athletic. So we will be right back with Josh.
break, so we are bringing on Josh Tolentino, who covers the Tampa Bay Rays for The Athletic. Hey, Josh, how's it going? Awesome. Great to be on again, and this, this season is going to be absolutely weird, but, but <laughs> it's been some sense of normalcy going back to the ballpark. Yeah, well, last time we had you on, you were brand new on the beat, and now you're a veteran, but everything is different, so I guess everyone's kind of a rookie when it comes to covering this season. You're trying to cover a team that is attempting to play baseball in one of the states where coronavirus counts have been increasing, and we know just across baseball, there have been all sorts of problems with testing and players either opting out or expressing their concerns, so... How has that gone with the Rays thus far? What level of concern have the players expressed and have there been any big snafus when it comes to the testing routine thus far? Yeah, in terms of the testing, I mean, I think you see right here across the Tampa Bay area just a a week or so ago when the cases really started to spike and you saw positive cases with both the Blue Jays and Phillies facilities just up the road in Clearwater and Dunedin. And it's like, okay, are the Rays going to have, you know, announce any cases here soon? You know, the, the, the club, they haven't announced anything officially and nothing's been leaked in terms of who's tested positive, but there have been some pretty significant names who've been missing from camp. Obviously the Rays started camp last Friday. So they're heading into day six of camp tomorrow. And these players that have been absent the entire time, like we haven't seen at all. Tyler Glass now, obviously, you know, one of their top three starters. Yanni Chirinos, their number four starter. Jose Martinez acquired uh, in that trade with St. Louis in this offseason. Expected to be a pretty uh, significant piece in the lineup somewhere, DHing or playing at first base. And Randy Arozarena also acquired in that trade. And you know, of those players, I mean, those are two uh, important players from that rotation. And, and one more name of note, Austin Meadows. He was there the first day of camp, but he's missed the, the following four days. And to be honest, man, I mean, he sounded kind of sick when, on Friday when uh, uh, he was at camp, the first day of camp, and he hasn't been there since. So, you know, still no official word on those guys. And as we look at testing across the league and all the snafus and you know hurdles like what you mentioned so far the rays they when we when at least when we ask them you know they talk of the training staff and they're like the testing is pretty good and you know in the five days that we've had camp we're able to talk to three players a day so out of those 15 players only one has really kind of complained about the testing and that was hunter renfro he and, and you know complain is kind of an extent he basically just said that the testing could be better and uh, you know quicker but so I don't know if the Rays are actually, you know, they do enjoy the testing or if they're just trained to, to say the right things. But, you know, outside of those uh, four players mentioned, you know, you throw in Austin Meadows there too. There are some kind of questions surrounding where they've been, but still no official word on in terms of the coronavirus testing for them. And what is your sense of the players' relative level of optimism that we will see a season not only start, but be completed uh, and find its way into October? Yeah, Meg, when it was kind of a guessing game when, uh, you know, we we first saw that baseball was going to be coming back. And really, I looked at the 40-man roster and the 60-man when it came out, and I tried to guess of, of just, you know, make an educated guess of who would be the most likely to not play or opt out, rather, because of concerns of, of you know, health concerns of the season. Obviously, Blake Snell came out and 
you know, made his Twitch ran and, and you know, it, it was pretty clear that it was more so focused on uh, wanting to get equal pay. So I won't even include that under, you know, my guess for health concerns. And there really was no one on the roster. I mean, Charlie Morton, possibly because of his age and uh, family. But um, one thing that sticks out for for me was that Hunter Renfro uh, spoke to him yesterday and the probably biggest takeaway outside of him uh, being the only person to complain about the testing was he said there has been zero discussion amongst teammates and players about uh, opting out and that the Rays are all in. And honestly, I mean, you think of this quirky 60 game condensed unique season that uh, we're about to have, or we, you know, the league thinks it's about to have here in these next few weeks, the Rays are, they're built around depth and and versatility and that's going to help them in any season. But I mean, they're just such a unique team and the way they use their roster and how they use their pitching and plugging and playing with the opener that I really think the players do kind of see this season as an advantage to them. So I think they're going to uh, want to be all in. And that's kind of the sense that I've uh, received from from discussing with all the players and coaches, Meg. Yeah, if there's any team that's going to try something wacky with the 60-game season or come up with some strategy that wouldn't work under normal circumstances or just attempt something that they might give a shot to now that they wouldn't have otherwise, it would probably be the Rays. And as you said, this is the team that kind of pioneered the opener, and so maybe other teams' pitching staff usage will just look more like the Rays has looked. But do you expect them to either benefit disproportionately from this by some strategy that they might employ or to do something completely different that we haven't seen before no i think i I really do think they're going to benefit from uh this season if the season gets in i mean i know there's still some lingering thoughts and issues about everything going on and if the season's going to get played and it's funny i just had a you know just a, a schedule analysis come out uh earlier today you know the schedule officially came out yesterday and I gave I gave them I pinged them at a 34-26 record prediction and looking back I was like man I, I think they're going to do a lot better than that you know but what's written is already written and you know it, it'll be a fun prediction to look back on if the Rays do end up getting far because I I really do think that uh, they're built around pitching and I mean realistically they have about 7-8 starters who who could pitch in a in a normal major league season um you know do they deploy that no i mean they they're they're built around uh, the opener that they they that innovative strategy that they created 2 years ago and if they decide to go with it again um they obviously lost the iconic opener in Ryan Stanek with that trade to uh Miami last year when they in which they acquired Nick Anderson who turned out to be one of baseball's best relievers so in terms of options of of using the opener last august and september they really shied away from it once they once they traded stanick away but they still do have options they've got andrew kittredge they've got diego castillo both with experience of being in that opener role but i mean if they roll if the rays just decide to roll out with regular starters they're they're going to be plenty fine but again we'll see what happens here with yanni chirinos and tyler glass now heading in these last two weeks of camp The Rays have so many exciting young prospects, and a great many of them found their way into the player pool for this strange season that we're about to have. I think, obviously, none more exciting than the very young, still, I believe, under-20 Wander Franco. Obviously, I don't think anyone expects that he is going to uh, sort of break camp with uh, the big league team, but what what series of events do you think would have to occur in order for us to see Wander Franco in a raised uniform on the big league team this year? 
Yeah, Meg, that's a great point because obviously, you know, there's going to be a lot of attention focused on baseball's number one prospect. And, you know, he's stashed away right now in Port Charlotte, but you'd, you'd imagine at some point, you know, possibly over these next few weeks that he might get up for a sim game uh, at Tropicana Field. But still a lot of attention surrounding Wander. And, you know, from what I've heard, it's more so the inclusion of him is to you know, like what many other teams are doing to, to keep their top prospects in shape and, and sure. give them some sense of normalcy uh, in the season. But I do see two kind of circumstances of, you know, Wander's path to the big leagues being accelerated. You know, I think if the Rays got off to a hot, hot start and really just pushed themselves, uh, and I know it's going to be tough. They've got obviously 10 games against each division opponent, including the Yankees, and they, they do almost all of those games exclusively in the month of August. But if they if they do get off to a hot start and then they see themselves ahead in the AL East by a significant amount of games, and I'm not sure what significant will look like, I guess five to ten games this season, and they they see that gap between them and you know the second place team, um, New York, um, I could see a situation where I mean Wander's big league ready. He's been big league ready. Ready, uh, I think safe to say at least over the past year. I mean the contact skills at the plate are just insane and if they if they could see him benefiting or them benefiting from bringing him as a reserve i i mean i wouldn't ping the rays against doing that because i mean they're just so creative and unique and i mean why not <laughs> the uh and then the other situation is that if injuries hit uh, obviously willie adamas is their everyday starter at shortstop and he led the team in games played at 152 last year uh, only missed 10 games, but I mean, Willie's a young guy. So, I mean, I mean, I really don't, unless he, there's some freak accident or injury in the, in the sense that he misses a significant amount of time, you know, I could see Wander coming up in it, but if Wander does come up and Willie's healthy uh, and, and that's going to happen eventually within the next year or so, you know, they're going to have to figure out where to play him because, you know, Willie Adams is obviously turning into that everyday star at shortstop and they're, you know, there's been talk about slotting Wander over to third base, but definitely a lot of attention on Wander, and he'll definitely be a uh, name to pay attention to over these uh, next few weeks and months of the 2020 season. The Rays lost time bloom to the Red Sox just a couple of weeks after they were eliminated from the playoffs, and they still had a pretty busy and active offseason. And obviously, we've seen them survive and thrive despite losing top executives before, but... How much of a loss is that? How disruptive is it? Or just how much of a system was in place where the pieces are interchangeable, but there's just sort of a, a process that endures? And I guess long term, too, how much of a challenge is it that Heimblum goes to a division rival and a team that historically maybe has spent a lot and could still spend a lot, but now can do so knowing everything that the Rays knew and kind of having their playbook of winning on a budget, too? Of course, and it's not just Heim that you uh, mentioned, Ben. I mean, it's the also kind of the effect of uh, what happened with the Astros. So they lost Heim, obviously, to the Red Sox, and then instead of replacing or you know promoting a specific person into into Heim's role, uh, GM Eric Neander, he actually replaced him with with three people, of, of, and you know they were going to have equal responsibilities. That those three were Peter Bendix. Uh, a very analytical, uh, driven guy in the front office. Carlos Rodriguez, he's head, the head of international scouting. And James Click, 
who is now actually the, <laughs> you know, he's heading everything over in, in Houston. So they, they lost two, uh, you know, pretty significant names of, you know, com- lots of combined years of experience uh, from this organization to, you know, I, I think it's safe to say, obviously, two uh, rival teams and the Red Sox within the division. And I think the Astros are turning into everyone's rival. So, but with Heim specifically, I mean, that, that's, that's a big piece. And, you know, there are some little things that you, you notice after he leaves. And it's, it's like, you know, if Heim was still here, I'm not sure they, they would do that. I mean, Heim was very high on uh, Matt Libertor, the pitching prospect that they sent over to uh, St. Louis to acquire a Rosarena and Jose Martinez, which, which made them a better team now. You know, Libertor is maybe a year away from the big leagues. And, and that was, Heim was really high on him. Um, and, and obviously Heim's still high on a lot of guys. Uh, still within the system uh, it's uh you know Blake Snell will obviously uh, probably get traded likely within the next two years and will it be to a division opponent no because you know that's not how things work you know he'll probably be traded to a uh, AL another AL club or the the National League uh, as his contract gets close to expiring he's got uh, four years left on that uh, with 50 million but the Rays are known to, to trade away as they get closer but when when it comes time for for snell to sign that next contract and if heim somehow is still there uh after you know four more years i wouldn't be surprised if snell was in a uh, red sox uniform uh, like what you said he uh, heim is used to to having the small budget and it's going to be uh, really fascinating to watch how he deploys his weapons over these next two years the you know the farm system is really needing a lot of work up there in boston and you know, just, you know, one of the biggest things that he did uh, when he first got there was uh, get rid of Mookie Betts. So <laughs> a lot on his table and uh, me and him actually text uh, frequently. And, you know, during the draft, I was I was teasing him about the, the cardigan he was wearing and the gray hairs that he's uh, developed. And so um, definitely going to keep tabs on, on Haim and James Click. So but the Rays are used to it. They're, they're used to, to losing their top, whether it be executives or players to to other teams and kind of like what the method will be for this year on the field. It's just plug and play and continuing. I thought that his cardigan was very snappy. I thought that he <laughs> I, no, I, I, himself I, I, well. <laughs> I told him. I told him I loved it, and uh, <laughs> you know the the reason that he actually texted me initially that night. It was on on draft night. Was because the Rays were about to pick, and they were picking. It might have been. I think actually it was the fourth round, and the Rays were slotted to pick right behind the Indians that round. And the Indians picked up this uh, prospect named Milan Tolentino. So the exact same last name, no relation, <laughs> you know, shortstop from out in California, I believe, high school, high schooler. And he said, how pumped, like I just, a random text from that night. He said, how pumped would you have been if uh, the Rays picked up Tolentino? And then I was like, we would have, uh, you know, I joked about his card again and told him we would, were so close to having a family uh, Zoom call there that night. But, <laughs> you know, funny, funny moment. And then also kind of teased him about, uh, you know, the hair growing. But uh, I also agree with you, Meg. I thought the cardigan was pretty fire. <laughs> Well, one of the ways, I mean, you you bring up the draft. This is one of the ways that the Rays, despite their budget, have been able to stay contenders recently is the strength of their drafting and their player development. You know, there were definitely teams that were willing to uh, engage in this reduced draft format. There were some teams that wanted to punt. I know the Rays were not among them. What was the team's sort of organizational response to the draft's compressed format this year? And do you have any sense of what they're hoping for uh, when we have some kind of 
I won't say return to normalcy because it'll still be reduced, but return to normalcy next year. Of course, I, I, I think before the draft, I, you know, you kind of think about each team and, and really the needs. Outside of catching, the Rays really don't have a specific hole or, or need in terms of the future. I mean, they're stacked really everywhere. Uh, we mentioned the depth of the 60-man roster, but uh, it's really beyond that. I mean, there's so many exclusions from there who could be on other teams' 60-man rosters. And it's funny you mentioned about how they approach the draft, Meg. Again, trying to predict about how they would do it. And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, there's no way they, they you know, draft some some more infielders or more spent on uh, middle infielders and pitching. So I mean, that's that's kind of how they continued going about their business and the the more kind of surprising takeaway and i'm not sure if surprising maybe definitely not shocked but kind of takeaway from this whole draft process and what followed it is the undrafted signees uh, of those of that twenty thousand dollar uh signing bonus that that mlb implemented this year and i really thought that the rays were going to have a, a lot of signees and to this point they actually still haven't signed anyone um, I think they're one of two major league clubs. I think the Angels also are, are in that boat where they haven't signed a single uh, undrafted signee. Uh, and it, it's kind of a li- just a little surprising considering the price point. You know, the Rays are uh, like what we have discussed. I mean, they're pretty tight with their budget. So I thought the $20,000 might be something that works in their favor, something that they might experiment with it. But at the same time, I, again, we mentioned the depth of the minor league system. It's like, Okay, if they if they sign these guys, where are they going to play? I mean, there there there's the the system is, is stacked at every level from uh, you know low level rookie ball all the way to to Triple A Durham. So, and then I think there's also that sense of you know wanting to provide normalcy to the minor leaguers during this crazy time, and I think that would just be added stress if they end up if they did end up signing any undrafted guys, but. That, that's probably the biggest takeaway is that at that $20,000 price point, they still have not signed any undrafted prospects. Yeah, and there is so much depth, particularly at the big league level in the outfield and sort of first base DH, and it's hard to see how everyone's going to fit and how they'll all get playing time in a short season. So I wonder how you see that all shaking out. Of course, they've lost a couple guys. They won't have Avisel Garcia. They won't have Tommy Pham this year, but they brought in so many. You've mentioned Hunter Renfro. You mentioned Rosarena, and then there's Margot also came in, and they signed Sutsugo, who probably wishes that he had come over in some other season when he could have played more (laughs) while the the NPB was active and he was still waiting to play over here. But there are just so many guys and there's Austin Meadows is sort of entrenched and then Kiermaier is in center, presumably. And so how do you fit in all of these guys? Jose Martinez, another one, (laughs) is there playing time for all of them? Exactly. I mean, that's that's it right there. Those names you mentioned, the I think really the biggest kind of offensive key will be the trio of Meadows. Uh, he led the team in home runs last year with 33. And then you throw in Renfro, who also had 33. And that, and uh, I think fans have to remember, he had 33 in San Diego, but he was injured for a good chunk of the year. And, you know, battling a foot issue, played throughout that, and still hit 33. Uh, and that's uh, that was a career high for him. So the Rays really think the trajectory in terms of the, the power and, and carry on, on and, and lifting the ball. I mean, they're really all about uh, Hunter, you know, hopefully getting some home runs for them. And then Susugo, 
Man, you know, Sasugo and Renfro, they're actually in the same hitting group. And, you know, we've been watching batting practice over the past almost week now of summer camp. And, man, it is a show when those two step in the box. Obviously, Sasugo hitting from the left side and, and Hunter Renfro and uh, hitting from the right side. And they go back to back uh, in the cage. And, uh, you know, you can sense that there's there's some sense of, uh, competitiveness when those guys are in there. They, they, I think they're wanting to, and you know, we joked with Hunter, if you know, who hit more and he, he kind of played it off in terms of, you know, we're in there to do a professional job with, a, you know, BP. And it, it's like, okay, from up, from a way up in the, the press box, you can see that that ball is flying, you know, into the bleachers and they're hitting all these different structures and in, inside the trop. And I know the trop gets, a good jab of, uh, you know, the catwalks and, and you know, the weird uh, structures just inside the, the stadium, the aesthetics. But you name a spot in there in the outfield beyond, you know, that, that home run line behind, behind that yellow line. Hunter and Susugo, they're hitting every, like literally every spot in BP and it's been pretty exciting to watch. So I think with the, that trio right there, Meadows, Renfro and Susugo, and they're also playing Susugo at third base. So, if, I mean, he ends up splitting time there with Yandy Diaz. That opens up more playing time for, you know, a guy like Manuel Margot. Um, you know, obviously Kevin Kiermaier is going to be a staple in in, the, in center. And then a, a guy like Randy Rosarena, that opens time for, for those players if Susugo does end up playing more at third base instead of the outfield. But that trio right there, and then you, obviously Kiermaier is going to gonna be playing. But whether one of those guys are DHing, but or or you know they decide to give Kiermaier a day off, it's really going to be focused around that 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 trio right there. That I think that that te- those those three players of Susugo, Meadows, and Renfro lead the team in in hits and home runs by the end of the year. So we talked about a couple of their prospects. We clearly have talked about Franco, but guys who are in the player pool and are going to sit at the alternate site and get reps will get player development time this year, but. The Rays have this wonderful deep system and clearly more prospects than they would ever be able to accommodate in their 60-man player pool. What's the organization's plan for player development this year? Obviously, it's such an important part of their ability to sustain themselves as an organization, not only the guys who they bring up and have be big league contributors, but also um, prospects who they trade away for other pieces. So what is their approach to player dev going to be in this extended layoff now that we know for sure we won't have a minor league season? Yeah, of course, Meg. I think the players that are in Port Charlotte officially on the 60-man roster, I think it's just to, to really simulate what would be a normal season. You look at the top uh, pitchers that they have there from Shane Baz, who was acquired in the Austin Meadows Tyler Gla- with Tyler Glass now in that Chris Archer trade. You know, an, uh, I was texting with a uh, another executive uh, not too long ago, and he just reminded me, he was like, that trade would have been even if it was Shane Boz straight up for Chris Archer. And we obviously saw what uh, Tyler Glasnow and Austin Meadows did for the Rays last season. So it kind of just speaks to Boz's potential, and they want to get him a normal season in, and, you know, some sense of, you know, simulated innings. And then really across the board, they've, they've obviously got guys like Shane McClanahan, Joe Ryan, other top pitching prospects, and then... And then uh, you know there there are some names though that were left off that 60 man camp who you've you've got a feel for in a sense the Xavier Edwards who was acquired in that uh tr- Tommy Pham trade that that sent you know Renfro here then Edwards was was also kind of like a little takeaway i mean he, he's a dude i mean he, he's uh was probably expected to play in Durham this year a switch hitting middle infielder him and Greg Jones who was their first round pick another switch handed 
hitting middle infielder uh, from last season. Both of those two guys were kind of significant names that were left off the 60-man roster, and you hope that in some sense that maybe down the line when uh, restrictions open up that they're allowed to be invited to Port Charlotte to, to you know, also train with the, the rest of the 60-man uh, roster that, that's uh, kind of planted there for the next two, three months. But I think I think that's going to be exactly it, is, is hoping that eventually that, that Port Charlotte will open up and that they, they can invite prospects like like the Edwards, like Greg Jones, Tyler Zombro, a pitcher that was uh, on the rise in their system, their top reliever from last year. Uh, to get those guys, you know, simulated innings, whether it be pitches, swings, because obviously, I mean, it's going to be hard to replicate any sense of, of a minor league season. But if they can, in, in some simulated effect uh, i think they will uh, take that over uh, anything else this year and the race still have uh, just looking at the roster resource team info tracker breakdown the fewest free agents on their 40 man or on what would have been their 26 men of any team and the most players acquired via trade and of course they've done this for quite a while and maybe that will change a little bit now as they start bringing along guys that they've drafted and, and have more homegrown players on their roster but the fact that they keep doing this and can compete over and over by trading players and getting the best of many trades do you see that as them still having some advantage in player valuation, even now that all teams invest very heavily in player valuation and having quantitative analysis departments? Or do you see it as a player development thing that they get guys and make them better? Or is it just that they have the prospect depth now that they can go and make trades and get good players and they're just better able to do that than most organizations are? Yeah, I think it's a big mix of Everything you stated, I think one example that kind of stuck out to me was uh, this offseason when they went out and got Manuel Margot and they got a, a guy like Arozarena. And it's like these are two, you know, very speedy outfielders. Arozarena is a contact, uh, you know, plus contact guy at the plate. But with Margot, I mean, he's really, I mean, he was a, a defensive animal for, for the Padres last year, you know, can really cover a lot of ground. And you know, up until that point, the Rays never really had anyone that outside of that, outside of Kiermaier. I mean, Kiermaier is his own kind of entity in defensively, and um, he's obviously struggled offensively um, ever since he's been called up to the big leagues. But man, defensively, he came off like one of the best defensive seasons he's had. He had he won his third Gold Glove last year, and things were really trending upward, at least on on that side of his game. And it, it was like. But at the same time, I mean, he's getting more expensive. Uh, you know, he's locked in, obviously, on on his deal. And he's got, I believe, two years remaining on that. And But like what we mentioned earlier, the Rays are known to uh, trade away assets at their peak value. And, you know, has Kiermaier peaked already? I mean, as, as, an, as an aging outfielder, I think so. But, um, I mean, his value is still up there. I mean, any team is going to want a, uh, you know, very versatile, quick, speedy, you know, three-time gold glove winner. And... Was that move to acquire Margot and a Rosarena necessarily meant that they were going to move him right now, this second? No, um, it's like they're always thinking a few steps ahead. But I mean, that I mean, when you acquire a player like Margot, and then you add in a guy like a Rosarena in that St. Louis trade, it's it's uh, it's your intentions become pretty clear. I mean, Margot and Kimura are very similar players, at least in the outfield defensively. So. And then again, you know, it's all about the the money game. They're they're saving a lot on their budget when they eventually do ship off Kiermaier. 
uh, Rosa Reina is still very young. And, and, you know, these are two very capable uh, replacements for when that time does come. For now, you know, Kimari is still a Ray, but I think that was just a, a proven example of what's to come. And the Rays are just always thinking a, a few steps ahead. Your mention of budget makes me think of a question that I had for you, which is that, you know, throughout the negotiations between the league and the Players Association as baseball tried to resume, I think there was a public sense that teams in smaller markets that have lower payrolls, that might have lower attendance, were perhaps leading the charter or advocates for further pay cuts and a reduced schedule. What is your sense of where Tampa's ownership group fell when it came to the 2020 season? How much baseball do you think they were interested in playing this year? Yeah, definitely, Meg. When there was that that report of, I think it was like surfaced around eight owners saying no or to a, a season or, you know, they, they were just ready to, to can it. I had actually heard that, that Stu Sternberg was not part of that group, which was a little surprising. I mean, just considering their usage of of the budget and, you know, how they're historically just one of the when it comes to budget i mean they they spend the least amount of money it's always it's you know it's always been them in oakland uh, for a very long time so that that was actually surprising a little bit but but in that sense i think you know Stu is you know he's very big on these big bold ideas and uh, unleashing the montreal sister city plan last year and you know he hasn't gone out and said it directly but i mean that's to maximize two different tv markets that you know when you look at strictly the the tv numbers and what the rays pull from the tampa market i know fans you know they do not show up to the games and they're you know last in attendance consistently but the the fans of that are around here or you know the viewers that are around here they tune into games i mean the the the, the viewership like it, it's it really did skyrocket last season and you know, they, they just announced a, a big TV deal not too long ago. So in that sense, I, I think there was a, a lot of money to be lost, you know, if the, if the Rays weren't on, you know, and, and every other MLB team weren't on TV because, you know, that's exactly where all the a lot of the revenue is going to come from. But from the ownership standpoint, I did hear that that Stu was, you know, he did want to, to have the season and he was not a part of those those eight or whatever number opposed to, to canning it. Did have a question about one specific player, another trade acquisition, Yandy Diaz, who I think when the Rays acquired him, there was a sense that, oh, there's more in here and they're going to get it out of him. And he did hit many more home runs in a partial season last year than he had the year before. His overall production in terms of WRC Plus was similar to what it had been in Cleveland the year before, and he still hit a lot of ground balls. So there was kind of just because of how he's built and how hard he hits the ball, he seemed like a potential slugger and I guess he maybe got part of the way there, but didn't really make a dramatic batted ball change. So is there even more in him or is he just kind of a, a above average, pretty good hitter? I, I still think there's some untapped potential. I think the biggest takeaway from last year, Ben, was that, uh, you know, he missed a lot of games. You know, he's such a massive human being and there's a you know there's jokes around the the clubhouse that he's you know the arnold schwarzenegger of the group and you know i think there's a there's a picture floating around and if you haven't mm-hmm. seen it i mean his his arms and whatever i'm not sure what year this workout was they're they're completely jacked they they definitely yes. are uh schwarzenegger-esque uh i mean he's a an animal like his uh his biceps are always bulging through his shirt and that's just who he is and to maintain that type of body weight and that type of just I guess, form of, of how he, you know, what his body is. I mean, it takes a lot. I mean, that's a lot of weight, you know, running those bases and controlling uh, the bag over there at third base. And 
you know, it's going to be hard for him to stay healthy throughout the endurance of what is the 162 game animal. So that's why I think, you know, we mentioned how the 60 game season might benefit them. And I think he's another player. I think he's just, just based on uh, his injury history. I think he's going to be able to play a lot more this season. And, and you look at the, the home run specifically, I mean, it's almost crazy. I think he had two home runs or, or one home run during his uh, time in Cleveland. And then the Rays get him and they they really try to get him to lift the ball. I know you mentioned the ground ball rate. And, and one thing that they tried to, to fix was that was putting nets in the infield and, and telling Yandy, you know, and during batting practice, hit it over the net. You know, we don't care where it goes. Just just try to hit it over the net. And that kind of mentality turned into, you know, the, the ball picking up and the home run trajectory also being boosted. And last year, I mean, again, 79 games, three long stints on the IL. You know, I, I tell this story to, to everyone who, uh, you know, always kind of thinks about Yandi and, and just his the season he had. Career best, thir- 16 home runs. But but really the biggest thing, uh, Ben and Meg, was in September, he, he was on the IL uh, for a very long time for another uh, foot issue that he had. And the Sunday, the very last game of the season, they had already clinched a couple days ago, uh, but the team was in Toronto. And I walk into the clubhouse on Sunday morning in Toronto and, and again, the vibe is always uh, very chill on Sundays and uh, a lot of guys are, are walking in and out from chapel and, you know, the room isn't very full. But in walks Yandi with his suitcase and, you know, he's um, all excited. And this was after missing, uh, you know, at least a month plus of baseball. And he plays in one game and, uh, you know, he, he really didn't have that great of a game. I think he went maybe two for four, one for four that game. Um, but that was his first game in a month. And just two days later, they're in the AL wildcard game, a do or die game. And who's hitting leadoff after not playing for a month outside of that game? Yandy Diaz. And what does he do? He hits two home runs. He obviously hit that leadoff home run. And it's like, this is a dude that that was just sitting off for a month. And I think that right there kind of just tells you the confidence that they have in him. And against left-handed pitching specifically, they're ready to, to unload Yandy. And I think there's a lot more potential in that bat because they really do want him to to lift the ball more one more thing i wanted to ask i was very curious going into last year about one of the raised coaches jonathan ehrlichman who was a member of their r&d department their front office and kind of became the first full-time coach in uniform with that background to still be a part of that department but also be in the dugout and, and in uniform so he's still on the coaching staff or, or still listed there so i assume it must have gone okay but did you get any chance to talk to him or any sense of what he did in that role and why it was valuable of course and uh you know everyone calls him just that's around the team or you know is around the team on an everyday basis his nickname is uh jay money and right. you look at so you know you, they call him jay money but i mean he really is kind of that analytics driven numbers guy in the dugout i mean obviously kevin cash is going to make all the baseball decisions on but i mean jay money drives a lot of those decisions and you think back to a pretty significant moment last season. The, the Rays were in Seattle. It was also a Sunday game. And uh, Ryan Yarbrough, he had pitched a near complete game. I think he, he got through eight, got through eight and a third, I'm pretty sure. And then, uh, you know, the Rays make this insane decision to uh, pull him for Emilio Pagan, who ended up getting that, that last uh, hitter out. I think it was eight, eight and two thirds that Yarbrough got 
but the Rays, they, they've been through uh, the longest. I'm not sure how many years it is now. I think it's two plus years. You know, got, you got to go back to, to, to make sure on that. But they, what, what is certain is that they've been through, out of all the major league clubs, they have the longest trout in terms of uh, having a complete game uh, from a pitcher. And, I mean, you think about it and the way they use their pitching staff. I wouldn't be surprised if they don't have another complete game as long as this is how they operate for the rest of the, the, the history of the Rays because, I mean, they're just known to to pull pitchers when they, they hit a certain limit of, of pitches and they really aren't driven around the, the uniqueness of or the traditions of baseball, the perfect game aspect. Um, you know, there were, there were moments last year when even Charlie Morton, and you know, a big veteran, would get upset when he got pulled and jay money is he just drives that i mean he's a math major from princeton you know a very numbers analytics guy and and he really does drive a lot of those decisions and his mind is always thinking again uh you know several steps ahead and uh you know if, for for all the purists that that want to watch the rays i mean they they really aren't the type because again they're going to always be numbers driven and, and analytics and jay money is a big part of that All right, so we always end with a prediction, which is hard enough in a full season, even harder in a 60-game season, and you kind of tossed out a number before, although you said maybe you had actually underrated the race in your written prediction, so feel free to stray from that here if you want to, but I am curious about what you think the Rays would have won in a 162-game season, and we will never be able to say you were wrong or right about that, but... That's one question, and then how many do you think you win now? And sort of built into that is whether you think the Rays kind of benefit from the 60-game season more so than other teams do. Of course, I think I'm going to go, I I think in the 162, I I was ready to go with 100. And I know 100 games is a big kind of staple for for what a team can accomplish in a major league season. Uh, But, I mean, you look at what they've done. They've gone from 80 to 90 to 96, and they just continue trending upward and the biggest thing that i mean even heading into this shortened season is the that strength of that starting rotation i think tyler glass now charlie morton and blake snell i mean that's as good as a trio that you're going to get across the league uh, obviously blake snell had his issues post cy young last year and he had a couple injuries but i mean if he can get back to his 2018 form and in terms of stuff last year I mean, his curveball, his fastball still felt great, and the numbers behind it were, were showing that they were still plus pitches. And then you got Charlie Morton, who pitched absolutely the best season of his career last year, finished uh, third in Cy Young voting. And then Tyler Glass now, I mean, before he got injured, I mean, he was one of the, the really biggest names to surface. He had the a sub-two ERA uh, a couple months in and then had a forearm issue that sidelined him for four months. But... You know, you throw in Snell, Glass now there, and then uh, Morden. I really think that trio can can lead them to a lot of victories. And it's like, you know, the Rays are always going to be built around pitching and run prevention. And I think with the the pitchers that we named, and, and the, those are just the top three, like what I mentioned earlier, in a regular season, they could definitely deploy a, a seven, eight-man rotation if they wanted to. I mean, that's just the depth that they own. But when you're built around pitching and depth and really run prevention, and then you add offensive additions like the names that we mentioned earlier, like the Susugos and the Renfros to help bridge that gap offensively, that was really their number one goal was to increase an offense that uh, I think finished last year 11th in in home runs. You you pair that, and that's going to get you a lot of wins. And I, I really do think um, in a 162-game season, 100 winning 100 games wouldn't be much of a stretch. And, you know, if, I, if I'm allowed to uh, 
rewrite my prediction of the 34 and 26. I think I'd, I would give the Rays uh, 37, 38 games. I, I really do think that they're going to be competitive this season. And I, I know they're going to, you know, I'm pretty confident that they're, they're going to have a, a pretty good record, but I'm really curious to see how they're going to do against New York. Obviously, the, the Yankees got Garrett Cole and, you know, they're just stacked from, from top to bottom, one of the hardest uh, lineups to face. But, you know, they get 10 chances. And uh, if they can, honestly, if they can survive, 500 or better against the Yankees, uh, even maybe four games. I, I think they have a legitimate chance at, at winning the division title. So is there an asterisk next to it? Uh, you know, I guess we'll see and, uh, you, you know, players can discuss that. But I really do think the Rays are in for uh, a positive in what should be a pretty wild season. All right. Well, you can follow the Rays throughout that season by following Josh on Twitter at JCT Sports and, of course, by reading him at The Athletic. So thanks again, Josh. We appreciate it. Ben and Meg, extreme pleasure to be on and and looking forward to to watching some baseball here pretty soon. Thank, Thank you. Okay, we'll take one more quick break now and we'll be back in just a moment with Miami Herald's Jordan McPherson to talk about the Marlins. are back and we are joined now by Jordan McPherson who is the Marlins beat writer for the Miami Herald. Hey Jordan. Hey Ben, how are you doing? Doing okay. So going to start this segment the same way we started our last segment which is just sort of asking you, you're covering a Florida-based team during a pandemic, you're at camp. How has the team handled this in terms of their public comments or opt-outs or testing and what specific challenges are presented to the Marlins because of their location? Yeah, definitely. Well, first off, I'll mention that Marlins Park is also a free testing site for the public. So on one side of the facility, on the outside, there's COVID testing going on while the team is also practicing inside inside the stadium. So they've been able to keep those, they've been able to keep those parts very separated. And in terms of the Marlins themselves, they've been pretty open about just about everything, with the exception of naming players who have tested positive due to the fact that players have not allowed the team to release their names. They've told us that they've had four players who have tested positive over the past two weeks, including one person who was to test positive during the intake session right before camp. They haven't had any players opt out, and they've been very open in terms of discussing how they're handling protocols, how they're adapting to everything, how they're doing their best to move forward during such an uncertain time, and how they're ultimately making sure that even when they're away from the field, they know they're responsible for everything that goes on in their lives, knowing that one person who goes astray could easily start, could easily tank everything that's going on for them and for the rest of baseball. Yeah, I was going to ask you, I mean, in the last couple of days, we've heard from other teams that have had testing delays and snafus in terms of tests that were either administered and then the results have been delayed getting back or were not administered at all over the long weekend. What has the Marlins experience been? I mean, if they have a testing site right there in the ballpark, you'd think that it would be easy, but I know those tests still have to go to Salt Lake City. So what has their experience been like? Have they been able to hold workouts as scheduled or have they experienced delays? Yeah, as of Tuesday, the Marlins haven't had any issues in terms of having to 
delay practice or cancel practice. They've had all of their testing go through, get delivered on time. They've been able to get the results. They did their last round of testing on Monday, so they are anticipating being able to get everything back either at the end of end of day Tuesday or first thing Wednesday. And as of right now, they haven't missed a single practice since they started everything up on Friday. Because the Marlins have so often been the butt of jokes when it comes to playing a season without fans in attendance, right? Everyone will say, oh, it'll be like a Marlins game. Ha ha. Yes, yes. Does this disproportionately affect the franchise or does it affect the franchise less than the other franchises in the sense that on the one hand, they don't spend a lot under normal circumstances and you could interpret that as cheapness or you could interpret it as not having the money to spend because they're so leveraged to the debt that they took on to buy the franchise, this new ownership group. On the other hand, they have less to lose in the sense that they did have the lowest attendance in baseball last year. So what are some of the Marlins specific factors here? Does it hurt them more or less than the typical team? It's a good question. I mean, yes, we can talk about the jokes about barely being fans in Marlins Park, average of just over 10,000 each of the last two years, last in the lead by at least 5,000 from the next team, which conveniently is also the Rays, another team in Florida. But when you think about it from the difference between no fans and 10,000 fans, it's still a very big difference from a small whisper versus complete silence when it comes to the players trying to build some energy around them, trying to crank things up when they're stepping up to the plate or making the next pitch. But the Marlins have also been trying over the last two years since Derek Jeter and Bruce Sherman took over the organization to regaining the trust of the community and trying to do what they can to start filling it, filling the ballpark up more than has been the case over the last goodness knows how long. But this does set them back a bit in being able to get them, get fans back into the ballpark and trying to heighten up the experience. And in terms of the finances, I mean, they've been doing a lot of their in-house stuff when it comes to building through their prospects, which includes a lot of team control, a lot of minimal salaries. I mean, they only had three guys in the roster who were set to make more than $5 million before the season started. So when you look at their entire roster with the 60-game schedule, they'll be making maybe a combined $18, $19, 20000000 million, or what they would have ended up paying Wei Yin Chen if he was still on the team. That's an entire another story. But in terms of the finances of it, yes, they have less to lose in terms of the financial aspect of it because they already they weren't putting in as much to start with. But it's also a part of their longer term process as they try to continue through the rebuild and hope to get over the hump of this third year, which is what they were calling the critical year as they try to keep moving forward. I wanted to ask about some of the baseball-related but off-field finances. Miami was very aggressive in their cost-cutting during the pandemic. I think at one point they had furloughed close to 40% of their baseball operations staff with the idea that those employees might come back at some point over the course of the season, but that their status would be reevaluated monthly. What's the current state of the organization when it comes to baseball ops? Have they brought anybody back? And then I'm curious how you expect this to have sort of a, what the longer-term impacts you expect those moves to be, because when Jeter's group came in, the Marlins had a lot of infrastructure and staffing work to do. They were, you know, sort of building up to look more like a, a typical modern baseball front office. Do you think that this has set them back at all or that it will make it harder for them to sort of make hiring decisions in the future because of how aggressive they were in their furloughs? To my knowledge, the furloughs on both baseball operations and business operations haven't changed from when the initial moves happened. It was about a third on each side. 
but they are hoping to, at some point, once the season starts getting back underway, start slowly weaning off the furloughs and start getting some people in at a little, some people back in a few people at a time or a, a small percentage at a time, I guess I should say. Once they start getting a little bit more more revenue coming in from the TV side of it, once games actually start getting played. And hopefully at some point, if fans are allowed to start coming back in, which the Marlins aren't completely against as the season goes on, depending on how the overall situation develops throughout South Florida. But in terms of how it's impacting them, it's going to impact them just about as much as it's going to impact everybody else in the league who's having to deal with the furloughs and having to deal with financial situations by having to figure out the checks and balances of making sure that they're keeping their heads above water while also making sure they can do what they can to expand and make sure they're continuing with the plans they were trying to do that they were trying to implement from when they started this up two and a half years ago. You mentioned Wei and Chen being a whole other story. So I guess we can get into that story while we're on the subject of money. The Marlins released him last year in November, and he did sign with the Mariners on a minor league contract and an invitation to spring training. And then they released him too. Why did the Marlins decide to let him go rather than give it another shot? Well, their logic was they needed their bullpen was a complete other mess by the time the end of last season came. They had a lot of guys who were high walk rate, low strikeout rate, and they're just basically they knew that they were going to basically be starting that from the ground up this year. They signed Sterling Sharp out of the Rule Five Draft. They signed uh, Brandon Kinsler, who they're hoping to be their closer. Uh, Brad Boxberger on the minor league deal. They have a couple guys, Ryan Sandick, Drew Steckenrider, who they're hoping to see develop and take the next level. They have a couple guys in their minor league system who they were hoping in the perfect scenario would get shots this year. So their thought process was at some point they were more than likely going to have to eat the money anyway, whether it was releasing it before the season started or at some point during the season or at the end of training camp or what have you. So their thought process, and again, not envisioning what was going to happen long-term with the coronavirus pandemic shutting down the season and all these different factors playing into it, they figured it was best to cut cords during the offseason and just give everybody who they still had in the organization and they still had, they had high hopes for going into the season, give everybody a fair shot instead of holding on to one person in one spot because of how much they owed him. But obviously, when you look at everything now and how players who were still under contract when the pandemic happened and are only getting prorated salaries, you can look back and say, wow, this is a stroke of bad luck on the Marlins side, another stroke of bad luck under a constant stream of things that have happened to them over the years. But at the time, it looked like the right move, and in the long run, more than likely will still be the right move if the Marlins are able to get some of the players who they brought in or had in their system and are able to see them show up this year and next year. I'm curious how the team is thinking about the fate of some of the younger post-prospect guys who still haven't quite performed to expectation or, you know, have only had limited big league experience, how the team is thinking about what they do in a 60-game season. Guys like Lewis Brinson, who is a little bit older, or like Isan Diaz. How do you think the team is going to look at their performance this year when it's considering where they fit into the long-term picture for Miami? Because a lot of the other guys on the roster are old enough that I think it's probably safe to assume that they, you know, their best case scenario from Miami's perspective is that they perform well and are attractive trade targets for a team that needs to fill in sort of bench players. But those guys are still young enough and have prospect 
pedigree or <laughs> prospect pedigree that has faded that they might be part of the next competitive Marlins team. So how is how is Miami thinking about them this year? That's definitely a fair question. Uh, I'll start with Lewis Brinson. They knew that this year, going into spring training this year, that this was going to be a make or break year for Lewis. Basically, they've given him every, they gave him every opportunity his first year, and he still struggled. They dropped him down to AAA after about a month and a half in the 2019 season, basically knowing that he wasn't producing. He, they needed to give him time to find himself, and it was still a very shaky year for him. So they knew that they were going to probably give him about six weeks at the start of the 2020 season if it went as was supposed to be with 162-game schedule to prove himself or else send him back down to AAA and let the next wave of players start making their chances. So with only 60 games and a lot of uncertainty about how things are going to develop, I would think that they're going to have him on a tight leash depending him actually making the roster for the 60-game stretch because that's nothing's guaranteed right now. They have Monty Harrison who was going to start in AAA at the beginning of the year if everything went normally, who is back in the equation now. They have, obviously, Corey Dickerson, who's going to hold down left field, and they want Jonathan VR in center. So if Monty Harrison gets a shot, that's your starting right fielder. And would it be better for Lewis Brinson to be riding the bench or giving a guy or giving a couple of their other prospects to be some chance to get some reps? It's a challenge that they're going to have to maneuver through there. And Isan Diaz, they're fully expecting him to be part of the plans and most likely being their main second baseman this year. He only had about two months worth of time at the big league level last year. Obviously, he had a couple highlights, the home run against Jacob DeGrom in his first game being the main one, but overall was very hesitant when he was at the plate his first year. He took a lot of pitches and basically wasn't as aggressive as the Marlins wanted to see him. They saw a lot more of that aggressiveness early in spring over the first few weeks of games. They've seen it a little bit over the first few days of practice now. And they think that if that aggressiveness shows and he's able to translate that into some better at-bats, that they'll more than likely keep him throughout the 60 games and hope that it starts sparking and showing what they saw from at the AAA level when they called him up last August. I was going to ask about the VR in center field experiment. He's played a little bit of center before in the big leagues, but not a lot. So how is that going or how was it going in spring training? It was a work in progress, and I'd say it still is a work in progress. He only had about a handful of games in center field during spring training before everything got shut down. But he's been mostly repping that. He's been mostly taking reps in center field during the four or five days of practice that have happened so far. He's getting some reps at second, short, and third as well, but not as much. And with it being a 60-game schedule and them having a designated hitter, the Marlins have said that they're going to more than likely rotate him around different spots just as they try to figure out how to maneuver giving players off days, having players use a DH role to stay in the lineup and not have to be in the field all 60 games throughout the year and figure out just how to utilize their versatility while to make sure everybody's getting enough playing time but also getting enough rest in order to try to avoid injuries and try to find ways to manufacture off days when there are only six off days in a 66-day run for 60, for a 60-game 60 schedule. 
So VR is maybe the clearest example of another thing the Marlins have done in recent off-seasons, which is sign or trade for veterans in an attempt to at least put some recognizable names out there or have some veneer of respectability, which we've seen other teams, other tanking teams like the Orioles, VR's previous team, not do. They've been content to just be as bad as possible. And the Marlins have been quite bad, of course, but they have at least acquired some people you know. So maybe last year it was you know, Starlin Castro or Curtis Granderson or Martin Prado or Neil Walker. And this year you mentioned Dickerson was uh, one of those and VR fits into that category. And then you've got Francisco Cervelli and Matt Joyce and some bullpen guys, Brandon Kinsler, Yumi Garcia, etc. So I guess it's hard to say that those people are putting fans in the seats, or at least I wouldn't want to see what the seats look like without those players. But is that just a product of this regime just not really wanting to completely tear it down? Or do they think it's important to have some veteran presence there? Or is it just about trying to stay out of the Players Association's crosshairs for not spending their revenue sharing money, which they are often uh, getting grievances lodged against them for? Yeah, I mean, they, you mentioned the veteran presence, and that, I think, was the big thing with it last year when they signed Curtis Granderson, when they had Neil Walker. Uh, they wanted to have those veteran bodies inside the clubhouse, especially with a team that's primarily built on guys who are either going through their first run of Major League Baseball or going through their second year or are going to be coming up midseason and having to deal with what ultimately became 105 lost season being able to maneuver through the tough times and also have some veteran guys who, who have been through rebuilds before, been through the long grind of playing through 162-game season to only win 57 games and show them the way to figure out how to look at the light at the end of the tunnel that's maybe two years away and hopefully get a couple get some value out of them on the field as well. This year, the veterans they brought in are also guys who may not be directly in their prime, but still have a couple years in them to to help and play that stopgap type role while the while the bigger prospects, the Monty Harrison, the Sixto Sanchez's, the Lewin Diaz's, the Jazz Chisholm's, are still waiting and trying to get that last those last reps to get ready for the big league level to give them the the time that they need and not have to be rushed up to the big league level like they would have done in years past and regimes past. You've mentioned a couple of the the bigger prospects already. The Marlins player pool is really interesting from a prospect perspective. I know when Eric Longenhagen wrote about it for us at Fangraphs, he noted that Miami currently has seven of his top 100 prospects in its pool, and they've recently added this year's first rounder in Max Meyer. Among the guys who are clearly going to be part of what Miami hopes is its next really good core, who do you expect to see logging significant major league time this year? Is there a clear strategy that's emerging in your conversations with the team about how they're going to sequence these guys? Are they going to bring some of them up right away or wait until they've traded away some of the veterans? What's their approach going to be? In terms of people who are going to get the most playing time, Monty Harrison stands out the most. He's one of their four guys in their top 30, at least according to some outlets who are at big league camp right now. And if not for a wrist injury last season that held him out for a significant amount of time, he would have been September call up last year and more than likely would have been a shoe in for opening day this year. They've liked what they've seen from him. He has the tools, he has speed, he has power. He can hit to all areas of the field. 
And there's a chance, especially with rosters starting at 30 players to start the year, there's a very good chance that he lands on the opening day roster and gets significant reps to come out right out of the gate. A couple other guys, uh, Lewin Diaz sticks out to me, first baseman. I mean, they obviously have a couple guys in Garrett Cooper and Jesus Aguilar who are going to get the majority of the reps there, but they like what they've seen out of Lewin Diaz, and I think that he has some some chances to get some reps as well. And then another guy, outfielder Jesus Sanchez, who they got from the Rays at the trade deadline last year. He would be probably my number two outfielder behind Monte as the big guys to, who have a chance to get up there, get up this year. And on the pitching side, I mean, you could feasibly see any one of Sixo Sanchez, Edward Cabrera, or Nick Niter as some of the first prospects to come up. I would think Niter would be first, even though he's not the flashiest of the prospects. He's the closest to being big league ready, and he's the only one of them who's had experience above double A. He was pretty good in his little bit of time that he had in AAA last year before having to undergo in, go surgery for a meniscus injury, and he really excelled in the fall league. And the Marlins have their eyes on him as probably the first guy if they need extra starting depth. So clearly the top 100 types are going to get their work in and dev time in at the team's alternate site, and then, as you mentioned, may make some appearances on the big league roster. But for their prospects who aren't in the player pool, what is the org's approach to player development right now? I have to imagine that for a team like Miami, which has targeted some toolsier, higher risk prospects, uh, some of which will get uh, time in the player pool, but some of which won't, the lack of a minor league season has to be particularly nerve wracking because you don't want those guys to get off track when they're supposed to be an important part of the team's future. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head there. They're trying to figure out what they can do in terms of MLB guidelines with figuring out what to do with players outside of the pool. They're hoping that there's going to be, they're going to be allowed to do some type of instructional league or a pseudo fall league type camp with players who aren't part of the pool. Once everything on the major league side gets squared away, I haven't specifically asked if they're going to let players go into independent league stuff yet. That's something I'm actually hoping to figure out with them at some point in the next couple of days, which obviously there's a lot of, there's a risk reward balance that goes there. Obviously getting reps in live games helps, but if an injury happens away from being on an MLB contract, that can, that can be some risk on the team side of it. But right now for the players who aren't there, they're just trying to have them do their work independently. And they're waiting to see what direction that MLB will allow them to go to moving forward. And they're hoping to get that answer pretty soon. Yeah. And because of all these things we've been talking about, that tendency to import veterans from other teams and some of the younger guys not really breaking out right away, the Marlins, according to the team info tracker on Roster Resource, have the lowest percentage of players on their 40 men who are homegrown and also the lowest percentage on their 26 men or what would have been their 26 men. And is that just purely kind of a, well, it's temporary and that's how we look today, but that's not how we'll look tomorrow. Is there any sort of self-evaluation about how the team has done in bringing along young guys or drafting guys? Is there a sense that there should be or, or could have been more homegrown guys on the roster right now? And even compared to other teams that are kind of in competitive down cycles, they've had more guys on their rosters that come from within the organization. So I don't know whether that's looked at as a failure in some sense or just kind of a temporary this is how we're building the team today but not tomorrow type thing 
Well, a lot of to think about in there is this regime is going to year three. They spent, they did a lot of trades early on to start beefing up the farm system. And now at this point, it looks like they're going to be building a lot more through their draft from here on out. A lot of the trades and a lot of the players who aren't homegrown were were at the top line of their prospect list were to start to make the instant boost in a farm system that really didn't have much MLB caliber talent when they took over back in October 2017. So that's where a lot of it is now. But these last two drafts have got have brought in a lot of talent that the Marlins are optimistic about. I mean, you have JJ between JJ Blade and Max Meyer, the two first round picks they had last the last two years. They really like Will Banfield, the catcher they took in the second round back in 2019. They like uh, Alex Vesey, who was their 18th round pick back in 2018. He's looking like a potential closer of the future. They're starting to see some of these prospects from the last two drafts really start to take shape and become and start bubbling up into their top prospect list. But again, like you said, there's a lot of guys who they had to get via trade in order to at least have that instant impact from the minor league level if and when they needed it for these for these next couple seasons while continuing to grow at the minor league level with homegrown guys. Yeah, and along those same lines, looking at that same team info tracker at Rasta Resource, the Marlins have the lowest percentage of United States-born players on any 40-man roster. It's just over half, and I wonder whether that is just kind of the way it's happened and it's just a coincidence, or it has something to do with the way that they have signed players or or developed players, or maybe it's partly an attempt to appeal to the local market in Miami, but I wonder what opportunities opportunities and challenges that presents a to you I guess as a reporter who's covering this very international team whether there are more types of stories you can tell people with different backgrounds whether there's a language barrier there and also just from a a team perspective when it comes to again the language barrier in the clubhouse or attempts to build chemistry among players who come from different places yeah well first off on the team side of it they have at least I remember spring training of 2019, they had a educational class where the English speaking players were learning Spanish. The Spanish speaking players were learning English. They did about a two to three week cycle of basically finding ways to have both, both groups trying to, to break the language barrier as much as they can. Obviously players, there are some players who serve as self translators for, for the players who are, who are still learning English and are going through it, but are still most comfortable speaking Spanish. The players do a lot of stuff internally to make sure that the barrier is as minimal as possible. On my side, there is a language barrier. Yes, my Spanish is improving, but it's still a much a work in progress. But I've been improving on that side of much of it. They have team translators who are more than accommodating with things. And I appreciate it. I enjoy having, being able to talk with players of such versatile backgrounds. It gives a little bit more of, gives an added perspective to players, different paths of majors, players' journeys through everything, how they approach their day-to-day lives within baseball, outside of baseball. And it gives a lot more stories to tell, which is ultimately what I'm trying to do when I'm covering the team. So there's a sense, I think, among many fans that Anything can happen in a 60-game season, and we've, you know, we've shown that the um, variability in the quality of the teams that are likely to make the postseason is higher when you have fewer games, but 
the Marlins still have playoff odds below 5% at Fangraphs, and with the season's new geographic realignment of opponents, they have the hardest strength of schedule in the National League per our playoff odds. So I'm curious what the team's expectations are for 2020. We are not going to ask you to predict their record yet. That's the mean question we make you end on. I'm curious sort of how they're understanding uh, the timing of their next competitive window. Has the player development sort of difficulties and hurdles of this year change when they think they're next going to be um, a competitive roster or do they see themselves as sort of on track for where they were prior to this long layoff and obviously the strangeness of this year? Yeah, they still see themselves as tracking towards that competitiveness, but with the 60-game season, they're going on the mantra of why not us? Why, why shouldn't the Marlins be contenders? And in theory, yes, that's true. Because again, if they can start off hypothetically with an eight and four record, I mean, they're starting with three games against Phillies, four games against Baltimore. Those, if they do well in those four games, if let's just say they hypothetically start five and two in those seven games, they're theoretically going to be in it after about 10 games, 10% of their games are done. But again, their schedule is no easy task. I mean, Outside of four games against Baltimore, four games against Toronto, which Toronto is tracking upward as well, every game is against teams that either finished or were better than 500 last year. And it's not going to be a fun run those final 42 games after they played their eight games against Baltimore and Toronto, their eight combined games against Baltimore and Toronto. They're going to have a long road ahead of them. It's not going to be easy to make the playoffs, but if they somehow find those couple random sparks that they did have a couple of those last year, nothing is theoretically out of the question, no matter how difficult it might look. Marlins Park has been one of the most extreme pitchers parks in baseball in the past several years, and they made some changes to the park's dimensions this winter that seemingly would increase offense. So what motivated those? What are the changes and what effect do you think they'll produce? Yeah, so they moved in the fences a little bit from... On from basically from right center field and right field, they're in about 10 to 15 feet total, which I did a little tracking last year based off of StatCast data of what put a balls hit in those areas that could have been home runs on either side from Marlins and opponents alike. And it was about maybe 35 total home runs could have been added over the course of 81 games between both teams. So it makes it a little bit fairer. It's not going to make it an immediate hitter's park, but it does make it a little bit fairer on the hitter side to potentially get a little bit more action in there. And then they also changed the turf to, or the field, the grass to a synthetic, a synthetic turf like field, similar to what the Astros have. And that's mostly due to the fact that, I mean, they're in South Florida, they keep the roof open. It's going to be a grass rotating around. It's going to be a lot, it's a lot of maintenance. So that helps that helps alleviate some of that a little bit. And as of right now, the players have said they've enjoyed it. They've enjoyed being on the synthetic grass and they don't think it's gonna be much of a difference for them, even if it is even if it does play a little bit faster than it would have with the regular grass they've had before. We've talked on the podcast before about Don Mattingly's tenure as manager and how unusual, really, given the team's trajectory, it is that he got an extension that he still gets to be the skipper of this team because it's not often that when a manager starts out with four consecutive sub-500 finishes and even sort of a competitive downslope and a couple last-place finishes and an ownership change, 
often you get changed, whether it's really your responsibility or not. But the Marlins not only kept him, but committed to him. So what is it that they like so much about Mattingly? The main thing with it is the respect he has inside the clubhouse. I mean, you could have looked at how they went through last year as they were skidding toward the 105 losses. And the Marlins easily could have just packed it in and said, okay, we're done, whatever. Let's just wait till next year. The players legitimately tried to keep playing and tried to compete as much as they could through the very last game because of the commitment and the respect level that they had for Don Mattingly. He's gone through what they're going through. His players may not have had the losing stretch. Of course, he was playing for the Yankees at the time during his playing career. But he understood and related to the player level of frustrations when things aren't when they know when they're trying to reach expectations that may not be realistic. And the players have bought in. They tried to find ways to fight and compete and try to keep doing whatever they could, even if the outcome didn't reflect that. And Derek Jeter noticed that. The Marlins front office noticed that. And that's why they decided to keep him around to continue to see, to hopefully see what the other side of the rebuild looks like. Because he came in, he was already here for two years before the rebuild before new ownership took over and they completely decided to go straight from straight straight to a full-on rebuild mode. Mattingly wasn't to blame for the rebuild taking place and the result of the last two years happening with considering what the roster talent he had. And they kind of would have front office the front office would have looked at it as he wanted to see the chance to see the rebuild through. He's openly expressed that. And Marlon's ownership wanted to give him the chance to at least get one or two more years to see if he could be a factor on the upslope of it now that they finally have gone through what they hope is the worst of the rebuild. So this hasn't just been a strange uh, time for players and team officials. It has to have been a very odd uh, experience for you as a beat writer. So I'm curious what the experience of camp has been like for you so far and sort of what the layoff was like for you in terms of your coverage and uh, how you approached the season. Yeah, definitely. It was a very interesting three months in terms of the break between the end of spring training and the start of camp last week. I did some work here and there with keeping up with coverage and keeping up with breaking news. And obviously the draft brought a little bit of a respite in June to help get some live coverage going on again. But over those three months, I also ended up helping out with other parts of my department. I helped out on a couple projects revolving high school sports. I was helping out on the news side a couple of days a week just to try to lend an extra hand with a lot of the coverage going on, especially in South Florida, where we are one of the hotbeds of the pandemic right now in terms of a percentage of positive cases and overall cases and a lot and shutdowns and starting back up and limiting things again. It was a very hectic time, but now that we started back up again. It feels slightly back to normal, even though there are still restrictions. Obviously we're not directly down the field, five feet from the players like we used to be. We're not in the locker room. All of our interviews have been through zoom or conference calls So the access has been a little bit, has been limited compared to what it used to be, but we're still getting, from what my expectations were going in, we're still getting, we're still getting pretty good amount of access. We're getting at least a couple players a day. We're getting Don Mattingly every day. And for the most part, players and front office and and Mattingly have been very open about how they've been maneuvering through everything. And it's been appreciated from my side of it, trying to make sure I'm covering the team to the best of my ability and 
being able to get everything I need heading into the season in a couple weeks. All right, so we always end these segments with predictions, which feels even more futile now than it used to with the 60-game season. So I'll ask you two things. First, I'll ask you how many games you think the Marlins would have won over a full 162-game season. And this is a free one for you because no one will ever be able to say you were wrong. So that's the first question. And then the second, I guess, is how many you think they will win over a 60-game season. And that kind of builds in, you know, do you think that they are any better or worse suited to this 60 game season than other teams or have they had guys get hurt or guys recover from injuries in ways that they would benefit so if you think they'll be any better or worse over this shortened season than they would have been over the 162 that would be of interest also yeah so before back in spring training my gut was telling me they were going to be somewhere around if, if they had a lot more things go right than wrong, they would have been in the 70 to 72 game range over 162 game season. Still not a winning record, but considerable progress from the 57 wins from last year. This now with the 60 game cycle and with the flat out brutal schedule they have in relation to the rest of baseball by having to do 40 games against the NL East and having the bulk of their 20 games against the ALEs being against the main contenders. I'm thinking they're going to be more, my gut says again, this would be if in the best case scenario, I'm going 25 and 25 and 35 for their record, just because I feel like they're going to be able to get off to a strong start. But once they start going to the buzzsaw of the back half of the schedule, it's going to be tough for them to string together enough games for me to feel confident they're going to be able to get over the 500 mark. Yeah. And if they don't start quickly, do you think they are a team that would look to trade players at the deadline? It it seems so silly almost to ask about a deadline that's a month after the season starts, essentially. But would they want to? And, and do you think they'd be able to move anyone at that point? I don't think it would be out of the question. The main thing would be, who are you going to be trading? And how much risk reward are teams going to be making after only watching, only being able to see about 25 to 30 games worth. It's going to be a very interesting look at the trade deadline this year, which again, it's just one of many, 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 many things that it's going to be very weird as we navigate through a 60 game season. That's again, fingers crossed and basically doing whatever you can to hope for the fact that an entire 60 game season is able to be played. Right. All right. Well, you can follow the Marlins season such as it is at the Miami Herald, where Jordan will be writing about it. You can also find Jordan on Twitter at J underscore McPherson 1126. And I see that you have your mask on in your Twitter profile pic. So we hope that you stay safe and uh, find the best way you can to navigate these unusual circumstances. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right, that will do it for today. Thanks for listening, as always. If you want to catch up on any of our previous team preview episodes, of course, they were recorded some months ago when we still thought we were going to have a 162-game season, but obviously still a lot of relevant material in there about how teams approach the season and the offseason. Just go to the show page on Fangraphs or look at the summary on your podcast app, and you should see links to all of the other previous team segments, so they are easy to find. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild the following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks alex hoffman sam klein alex leg 
Kyle Scott, and Steve French. Thanks to all of you. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can keep your questions and comments for me and Meg and Sam coming via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. We will be back with another team preview podcast next time. I think it'll be the Yankees and the Tigers and then another non-preview podcast after that. So we will talk to you then. Once your dreams come knocking at your door It's time to realize you aren't dreaming anymore And once your life is set to settle down Take a look around you No more dreaming to be found